Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comic, 2000 AD, and several other British comics besides. I am Eamon Clark, and I am in London in a secret location with Duncan Nimmo. Duncan, welcome back to the book club. Hello. Yes, it's charming surroundings yes, we find ourselves in. The secret in. location is very secret. <laughs> um, but hopefully it'll be reasonably quiet, because finding somewhere quiet to record in London is, has proved to be a challenge, as my um, Apple podcast reviews prove. But anyway, um, now, it's been a while. We had you on the podcast, episode 24, Captain Britain. Yeah. Turned out to be even more popular than you and I thought. Yeah. yeah a lot of people loved that. Very gratifying. Episode 52, I think it was, Midnight Surfer. Latest so, story ever. Yep, there you go. So that's two years ago, I think, since we last, or at least since the episode came out. Yes. Here we are in December. Um, tell us, what are we talking about today? Uh, Kingdom of the Wicked, which seems to be, a, a, I think, a misgotten gem that uh, lots of people who like 2000 AD would like, but it doesn't. I don't think it's in print at the moment. And, uh, yeah, so I'm here to fanfare it. Excellent. All right, so this is Kingdom of the Wicked. Um, I've got a hard copy from 2014, a Titan edition. Uh, The background of this comic is is interesting because it started, I think, from the introduction, from Ian Edgerton's introduction. It was supposed to be Tundra UK Mm -hmm. with Dave Elliott and Steve Wright as the sort of editors and commissioners. Then it goes to Calibre Comics, and it comes out as a four-issue black-and-white strip with colour covers in 1997. Yep. Then Dark Horse get hold of it in 2004, and Disraeli colours it and makes a colour version of it, which they put out. And then we've got this Titan edition somehow in a hardback, very nice hardback, from 2014, so, I've mentioned already, Ian Edgerton is the writer, Matt Brooker Disraeli is the artist, and that quite well-known combination of Edgerton and Disraeli. Um, lettered by Woodrow Phoenix, editors, I think, for Calibre at the time were Joe and James Pruitt. So that's the, the technicals. Tell us a bit about Kingdom of the Wicked and why you picked it. Well, um, I've... Strangely, I first discovered Kingdom of the Wicked in its first form uh, as the Tundra uh, back in the days of the uh, UK comic convention, UCAG. Oh, yeah. I used to uh, go with a friend of mine who was a budding uh, comic seller and he got tickets to the Friday trade day. So we went up there looking very official in our 19-year-old selves. I think it was 19. But... It was one of the early ones, and at the trade day were Tundra, and they were pushing out their wares, and they had mock-up comics, mock-up versions of all the comics they were going to do, and I was instantly drawn to Kingdom of the Wicked. It was one issue. It was, mm. I think it was two issues, and it just blew me away. I loved the art. I hadn't seen uh, Disraeli in colour before then. He was this kind of secret artist in Deadline, yeah. the, the one that wasn't... Uh, Jamie Hewlett or Philip Bond, and I just loved it. And the 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 idea of it, the first issue has the teddy bears in the World War One trenches, and I just the idea stuck with me. And I thought this is amazing. It was in full colour, uh, printed edition, 
stupidly I didn't steal it there and then and walk <laughs> away with it because I didn't realise at the time it would be 10 years to or so later that I would be until I finally saw it in the Calibre edition right and that was black and white so there was also a, a downgrade there uh, so yeah I, I, I saw it and it I'll, I'll be honest with you that some of my sketchbooks uh, as a budding artist were full of bunny rabbits and toys fighting World War One because I thought the concept just I don't know it just really stuck with me I wasn't a, I wasn't a big um, steampunk fan or any of the that and sometimes certain concepts went by me like I was the first I didn't understand the whole um, using uh, characters <coughs> historical characters in other novels mm. until I read uh, there was a, a Sherlock Holmes adventure done by uh, Gordon Rene very early on that right. had, had uh, Holmes as a fictional character travelling across books to solve a mystery and uh, again concept apparently now people tell me oh yes we've been doing that since the 60s but a concept I hadn't seen before so this whole time travel thing kind of stuck with me and the concept of the teddy bears your childhood being turned into World War One, just really blew me away and then um, as I say jump forward saw the calibre edition finally got to the uh, lovely colour edition and uh, I've been a huge fan ever since okay fascinating so before the 1997 calibre edition yep Tundra had actually got Full coloured copies yeah. of the first two yeah at least and how much beforehand was that how much before 97 that was, that was, that was uh, it was in the 80s so 89 blimey ok so it was 88 to 89 because Tundra came and went and didn't actually publish anything right ok so yeah. that's what happened you saw it, I saw, saw it it was during the it was during the, the kind of what I, you can almost see of the comic bubble where suddenly right. everyone was mad for everything and yeah. everything was either Tank Girl or uh, Horned God and comics were going to explode and they were going to and there's that Channel Four documentary about yeah. how they were going to become adult and all this and it was an amazing time and then it just disappeared again because I don't think there they were I don't think there was the audience out there that they thought there were right. Uh, but there was always a strong audience, but there wasn't an audience out there to be fl- a market to be flooded with stuff. I remember right. uh, Marvel UK at the time announcing like a hundred odd titles that they were going to bring out and sales were going to be amazing and all this, and none of them surfaced. I think Sleaze Brothers was the joke of the biggest joke of them, but yeah, that was of the time. So then there was a gap, and then out of the blue, in a comic shop in Canterbury when I was on holiday. Uh, I stumbled across the calibre because of the cover. Right. Suddenly this big, bold, Disraeli colour, colour, colour cover, sorry, uh, stuck out to me and I picked it up and I thought, oh my God, it's it's this story that I, I thought had almost become a myth in my head. Yeah. That I'd seen it, you know, and gone. And then I collected it, I saw it in the calibre and then I got it collected in the calibre. They did a collected edition in black and white and then it all went quiet until I think I don't know if uh, Dark Horse released it in issues before they released it as a I wish I knew and I wish the comic book DB site still existed because I might be able to tell from that but yeah okay I'm fascinated that you know to my eternal shame and regret I never ever got to a UCAC ever right which I should have done um just to say the word UCAC. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and and the, to hear the stories from some of them, 
and you know, like if we had Jules Boyle on the podcast, and you know, his great stories of meeting people like Glenn Fabry at a very young age, and you know, yeah. uh, so on. And you're yourself seeing proof copies of something that never actually hit the streets mm. or the, the shelves. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, so for, anyway, to finally get to see it yeah. after all those years and think, oh, I didn't imagine it. No, I, I, I genuinely had got to a point where I just decided it was something that had been disappeared into the ether. And I, I'd, and I loved the concept, but I didn't know anything else about it. Right. Because you're at a packed place, you just pick it up, flick through, I think brilliant. I think I said to the guy, can I have a copy? And he went, no, 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 those, those are you know, proofs or whatever. Strictly proofs. And yeah. I really boldly should have just shoved a load in my bag and walked off. <laughs> It'd be worth a fortune, yeah. Dunk. Yeah, they'd, be, they'd be worth a fortune to me. But yeah. yeah. Fascinating. OK, so you've hinted a little bit about it, about this idea of toys in the First World War, particularly the, the, the sort of infamous moment of the, the teddy bears going over the top in this yeah. comic. Um, give us a brief outline of what Kingdom of the Wicked is about. Um, because I suspect, as you say, that this is an overlooked gem that a lot of people may not have accounted. I mean, I think they'll know Edgington and Disraeli from Scarlet Traces, yes. which is now very definitely a 2000 AD thing. They'll probably know Leviathan, which I think is quite well known. Yep. Kingdom of the Wicked, like yourself, I think often gets overlooked. I think Kingdom of the Wicked is, 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 is their first big collaboration. Yeah. Uh, so uh, very early on, but they kind of hit their stride. I think it's. I've always thought that they go together really well as a as a team, with Disraeli's very strong draftsmanship, uh, and Ian's ability to create worlds, or the Edgington verse or whatever it's called. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, but the the story itself is uh, a children's author called uh, Christopher Graham, and he's at the pinnacle of his career, and yeah, he's also doubting himself because he's a forty-something. He, he's not very social, he gets more joy out of writing than he does out of uh, meeting and greeting, and yet, because his career's taken off, he's now in a situation where he's being flooded with offers and meeting people and Disney, and they even mentioned Pixar, which had through me and thought, bloody hell, how long ago was this then? Because... I think 20-odd years ago was Pixar even really a, I think, a force for good. I think they may have updated this, <laughs> ah, some of the references slightly yeah. since the original publication. That threw me this morning. Yes. So anyway, and at the time, unfortunately, he starts suffering these nauseating headaches. And they get worse and worse. And then finally, he passes out. And while he's passed out, he goes back and revisits uh, a childhood place called Castrovalva that he'd created in his head as a, as a single child and a creative child and fully fleshed out but now had left behind as a memory, as a childhood memory and he's re-put into the situation and basically it's all gone to hell and the fantasy fluffy... Uh, Toy land that he created in his head uh, has basically become like a World War One, and they're fighting for their lives. But they're fighting, and they're teddy bears, and they're strange blob people, and they're people made of wood. And but it's a grim reality. And then he basically flips in and out of his actual reality and this reality, trying to find out what's going on. 
and as not many people have read it, I'm going to leave it as a mystery that you have to you solve yourself by reading the book. Splendid. So we won't give the spoilers as to actually what yeah. has happened. As you say, we've got this fantastic childhood fantasy world that he's created. Yeah. And you're quite right, as you say, because he's a ch- he was a single child living fairly remotely, and he's yeah. got a very creative mind. I think he also got ill and was yes. stuck in bed for a long time. Yes, which, of course, is when we all first discovered comics when our parents brought us those. Yeah. But anyway, and, and he created Castrovalva, and it's this lovely um, fictional world in his head um, and then years later he finds his way back to it and as you say it's all gone to hell and they are fighting a war and it's a, it's a, it's a terrible war it's a terrible unpleasant um, and brutal very first world war type conflict that's going on and as you say the story does flip backwards and forwards between his reality and Castrovalva although they sort of start to bleed over into each other um, okay so I mean, you've talked a little bit about your first discovery of it. Was there anything else about it that sort of appealed to you to pick it for the book club? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's what I enjoy, which is it's self-contained. It has beginning, middle and end. Uh, it's not like a snippet of an ongoing series. I, I find it hard to recommend people something that needs three years of knowledge beforehand yeah. to enjoy and... Like Midnight Surfer is a great story, but you almost have to see it within context of already knowing Dread and yeah. getting into it. And I just think it's just, it's just a fabulous little tale. I, uh, it's a big shame. I have a fi- sneaky feeling. I think there there was more, and it was edited down. Right. But I feel that same about lots of uh, their collaborations. Uh, Leviathan, I always thought had more legs. Yes. Then it was actually printed. It's almost as if they they the middle great beginnings. The middle gets a bit chopped. Uh, same with uh, the Scarlet, Tra- St- Scarlet Traces when they did the um, I think it was the the Great Game. Yeah. And I think that was meant to be six issues and then was suddenly five issues. And you, again, you got the weird feelings. To, not that it ruined it in any way, but that there's something that was missing. And I think this was such a rich. Uh, amazing world but I wish there was more build up there was more uh, just adventures so much you could do with a corrupted child the right. motif of a corrupted childhood and the horror horror meets cute you know the like murder in uh, Noddy Land um, yes uh, so so I, I love it and I, 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 I totally think it is a finished piece I just would love to have seen more same as the um the small story that opens it. The, yes, the, the prologue. Yeah, the, the horrible child. Little monsters. Little monsters was printed in um, heavy metal. Oh, was it? Yeah, and I found that in the meantime between, but it was just an odd little snippet, giving giving you the world. Yes. Uh, and hinting at things. So the, the, there's a little prologue called Little Monsters, which is almost like a childhood poem with illustrations from Disraeli. And it's about two wonderful characters, Wavy Davy Darley and Tiny Tom Fisherhead, who has got a fish for, uh, for a head, uh, and their encounter with a little monster and what happens to them, yeah. which is, you know, turns from childhood fairy tale nursery rhyme fun into something very dark and and cold and sort of bleak in a way mm-hmm. isn't it 
and sets up this story. So that's fascinating. It's been added for this volume, I think, as you say, printed elsewhere. Yes. So, so the sort of the publication history and the way it's been brought together for this book actually is interesting because there's quite a lot going on, isn't there? Mm. Um, well, uh, last knowing that I was going to do this, uh, last uh, uh, thought bubble, I asked Disraeli for an explanation, and bless his cotton socks, he gave me an explanation. Unfortunately, I was incredibly hungover at the time, <laughs> and he took half an hour, and by the end, I thought I was going to die. Right. But as I say, he's always an absolute charming man to meet uh, and get stories from, but he does definitely give you all the details. So I had all the comings and goings and uh, how they've now got full copyright of it, and they've, all, they've got fantastic digital versions uh, free and they've all cleaned up and that's why they can do these prints so it's all off their own back if they reprinted it they'd have to find somebody to reprint it there's no they own it completely right uh, yeah so I mean certainly one of the things about Matt Brooker Disraeli um, is that he he always gives you plenty of information yes and we will mention a bit later on the fact that at the back of this book he's got quite a bit about his artistic process oh yeah uh, involved and there is more of it online that I discovered as well and there's there's wonderful creator sort of um, from the drawing board videos that he does occasionally yeah. about his digital processes which is just I'm sure to you you know what he's doing but to me it looks like wizardry um, he's wizardry um, <laughs> but when I and when I talk to him I mean if you've if people have listened to my remembering Carlos episode when you talk to him ask him a question at a convention uh, he will give you a very detailed, in-depth and lengthy answer. And he always does. He's very knowledgeable about British comics, about all the other artists. And he'll be doing this while I'll be producing you a beautiful sketch at the same yeah. time. He's remarkable, isn't he? Yes. He'll also teach you how to defend yourself against a goose. Right. And the advantages of speaking Esperanto. Yeah, we, I never thought those that are, would those, come those up. are my two other ones I've experienced <laughs> while getting a fabulous sketch from him. Which he then asks if he, if he can take a photograph of like it belongs to you rather than his, yes, his work. Yes, which I've always found amazing. But yeah, no, he's 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 genuinely. If you if you haven't gone over and bought all of his wares, he's genuinely uh, somebody you should engage with at a comic con. He's what you'd like everyone else to be. Yeah, yeah, he is the perfect person at a con. Yeah, but also I, I love his art because uh, he he. He's not scared of backgrounds. No. He's, every single shot is in context. There's no talking heads unless there absolutely needs to be. He's wonderful for using um, negative space and having, like, a, there's a few shots in there where different characters are caught, like when Graham says, I don't want to be here, when he's at his uh, 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 exhibition of his work and he's caught against a stark white background with no uh, border. And Israeli does those to a treat as well. Yeah. But other than that, every time you get into it, they're all dense with little details, like the uh, posters in the doctor's room for scrofula. Yes. And mastitis. And I'm sure there's fish paste in there at some point. There is. There's a couple oh. of appearances of fish paste, like, which is a Disraeli in joke that yes. appears in all of his comics at some point. Yeah. But he also he also has an amazing use of colour. Later on, there's a, a real sense of swap, swapping between worlds and the, the different colours of each but as things progress. 
Yes. Yeah, he, and he never uses like a naturalistic. There's never a uh, just a constant. Oh, flesh is pink, grass is green. It's using the the colours of the time of that moment, uh, and and really bring draws you in. As I say, unfortunately, all this praise I, I'm taking away the fantastic story, which well, is Ian. Well, let's just dot back to the fantastic story from Ian. Um, who's produced this marvellous world of, you know, Chris Graham and Castrovalva and Chris Graham's real-world struggles, both with his fame and with the fact that he's becoming ill and he's having these episodes that keep throwing him into Castrovalva. And there's a lovely moment sort of in the first third of the book, I guess, where he goes to the GP. And in, his, in the process, he explains to the GP about these things called paracosms, which are fictional worlds made up by either single children or groups of children as just places to tell stories where their characters exist and I think there's something where he says so I built Castrovalva it was Avalon and Oz Never Neverland and Narnia all rolled into one but it was something more it was mine Um, and as you said he has these fantastic characters in there Uh, Old Bob the dog Fuzzbox the teddy bear Mm. Um, we've mentioned Wavy Davy Darley and um, the Fishhead Boy, but there's so many others in there that are just fantastic. Um, that these characters inhabit in a fictional world, and this strange idea that once Chris Graham grows up and sort of forgets about the fictional world, it somehow continues, uh, and then take while he's not there, it takes a darker turn, which yeah. is fantastic. I guess I should mention at this point that we have done a podcast um, with my daughter about the Sandman story, A Game of You, which does cover slightly similar territory about a woman who finds that she's transported back to the fantasy world that she thought she had just imagined as a child. And it's real, but it's become again darker while she was away. Um, So some similar themes, but to put the toys in a sort of World War I style conflict is it's just amazing stuff by mm. Ian. And then to keep introducing characters, I mean, I particularly like, there's a villainous character called the Mugwump yes. in the middle of the book who uh, is great. Um, when Chris Graham finds his way into sort of like a hut of some sort of hunter that has um, clearly cannibalistic tastes and it goes exactly as you might expect it to go yeah. when the hunter returns home. Um, but then he also, it's the fact that uh, Chris Graham has given the mugwomp the ability to hunt, but he didn't realise he had because he invented him as a, a chef. Yes, with a perfect uh, sense of smell. Yeah, and suddenly he's become a hunter with a perfect sense of smell. Yes, and then Chris is uh, beating himself up about the irony he he's going to be killed by something he created when he was eight, and and also because he gave him the ability to hunt him. Yeah. So, yeah, those are great. What I find very interesting with the book is that uh, it's kind of of a moment, and I don't think you could write it today with the same references. There's something about when it was written in the 90s and we children of the 70s and 60s, and I think it works when Chris Graham is like a child of the 50s because there's a lot of nostalgia in there. There's a lot of uh, the, the noddy... And, yes. Uh, tea time and uh, the, the 
Toy Town. Yeah, and, Toy Town. Yeah. Lots of stuff from the 50s. And then there's the, the kind of loomingness, looming of the World War One, which wasn't as great, but was still a, still a, a, a sense to the nation that these, these things had happened in World War Two. Whereas nowadays, if he was a child, if he was his age like I am now, and he'd grown up more in the 70s, then the Castrovalva would be more probably Transformers and yeah. Ghostbusters and and He-Man. So it's very much, it's very English in yes. its way. I think that's what I like as well. It it it, it doesn't have any kind of, uh, it, it's all about the kind of a British childhood, but then an, an idealised British childhood. Uh, well, idealised in his head, yeah. not in reality, because we all know reality. So that's, that's, that interests me, the fact that it, it sits in this very unique time. Right. And you could do it today, but you wouldn't have the guy having the same memories. And I don't think the characters would fight World War I. No. Because that's too far away. That, it would be some weird uh, Iraqi version or... Yeah. Uh, a sort of combination of a Gulf War yeah. or Sonic the Hedgehog or something like that. Yeah. Yes. Sonic the Comic, maybe. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just thinking as we sit here, I'm wondering if in 20 years' time we'll be reading comic books about characters who suddenly find their way into a Fortnite-like world that they, you know, used to play in when they were kids, and now, you know, it becomes real and nasty and gruesome, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there are already ones where it's all about them finding themselves in a video world. In a real video yeah. world, yeah. I think yeah. there's been some long-standing ones where everyone relates to it because they've all been lost in video worlds, whereas we got lost in 2000 AD. Sure, yes. And I think Chris Graham probably would have got lost in Eagle and uh, all of those of the day. I think I seem to remember from my own annotations I did for this years ago that there is actually a copy of Eagle to be glimpsed <laughs> somewhere in his trunk when he goes to find his childhood um, his childhood sort of uh, keepsakes that he's hung on to in the attic. His scribblings. Yes, exactly. Okay, um, any other sort of like interesting or favourite characters as the story went on that Ian Edgington introduced or that Matt uh, Disraeli sort of illustrated? No, I, 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 I love the visuals and, and rereading it on the train coming down. Uh, I forgot some of the little touches like the uh, eviscerated horses that are hung from lampposts and... Uh, that's Other gruesome, isn't it? Incredibly grim things that are given a, like a, a strangely light affair to them because they're in in this fantasy land rather than reality. It reminded me of the kind of uh, Alan Moore Miracle Man where he he kills London, oh, and you get all the grim yes. images from that, and you get the grim images in this, and there's a real sense of like uh, it's worse because they're slightly comical, but then you're also more forgiving in looking at them because you because they're slightly comical. And then your brain has to process and go, well, hang on, those are horses that have been hung. Yeah. And they've yes, here they chat. are. Yeah. Yes. And uh, there's the, uh, the, the, what turned out to be uh, Charlie Brown. Yes. Yes. Uh, Who's become a disabled refugee from, a, from this awful conflict that's gone on. Um, and he's, you know, we've seen him earlier in the book and then there he is almost, you know, he's, his traditional striped, uh, wavy line striped yellow jumper in tatters. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And there's that scene of the horses or seahorses of some description, actually probably skinned horses, I yes, should think, hanging are. from lampposts or trees. Because you see the horses earlier. Yeah. Captain Black Blood or whatever his name is. Uh, 
Uh, the, uh, is it, into battle. Is it Captain Flashheart? That's it. Because um, I like Captain Flashheart because the older Captain Flashheart, who is now balded, moustached, wearing his sort of like, um, I don't know what it's called, ceremonial red and gold uniform, um, meets Chris, the grown-up Chris. <clears throat> and I thought this was a reference to... And uh, the character Colin Candy from the life and death of uh, Colonel Blimp, oh, right. a famous Powell and Pressburger film, and I just that, that just struck struck me when I was reading this. Um, but yeah, earlier on they have the cavalry in their red and gold, um, literally charging enemy machine guns and cannons mm-hmm. um, in a terrible <coughs> act. Um, so it almost shows that uh, the the simple people trying to fight against something that they just have no chance against yeah but there's also this looming uh, feeling even with the people fighting that it's all a joke it's all could be going their destruction should be on the horizon but it's not and somebody or something is holding them back yeah and playing it like a game and then yeah as, as we progress we obviously go deeper into that to find out what it really is going on and for a book, I mean, I think we've already mentioned it, or I have, but for a book that is about childhood toys, it does get very dark, doesn't it, as yeah. it goes on? It gets darker and darker and grimmer and grimmer, and it literally becomes a battle of life and death, you know, um, for all of them, in, fa- in fact, um, but without wanting to give too much away about what's going to come towards the last quarter of the book. Um, it's remarkable stuff. So... We've mentioned Ian and his, you know, his remarkable imagination in bringing up all this stuff from childhood, creating this wonderful world. And then, of course, we've also talked briefly about him already. But Matt, you know, Disraeli's art in here is just stupendous to to enjoy. Um, and this was when, of course, he was before he'd become a digital artist, yes. wasn't it? So it's his hand drawn stuff which he has recolored for the editions that were later produced. Oh, I think he only, he only tweaked it. Did he? Yes. Right. Because I know he had to get scans from Calibre Comics, I think, yeah. and so on, and there was some touching up he did in order to get yeah. the colours. There are definite moments that, just out of artistic pride, I think, he's t- played with things now in a digital way that you couldn't have done beforehand. Yeah. Like the whole uh, nausea effect where uh, Chris is blurred yes and starts blurring which gives you an amazing feeling of yeah I, I understand that that's how nausea works yes if you you know if you've had one of those migraine he- he- nausea headaches the depiction of it in this book is like oh yeah that's what it's yeah. like yeah you feel like yeah I've had that there's also I mean again we're talking about Disraeli's art notes that are at the back of this book and some of the retouching pages I notice he's also got his original rough for what would become the cover, the wraparound cover yes. for the hardback that I'm holding here, um, which is an astonishing piece of art of gas masks for World War I teddy bears going over the top, yeah. um, which I gather uh, sold even before he finished it, the original artwork for it. Oh, really? Yes, he mentions See? it in here. He well, said, I sold the original version of this before the book was even published. <laughs> no, the, um, the the version I saw had a cover, and it's it's uh, it was a physical cover. So this is the digital cover now. Right. But it was a physical cover, and that's what caught my eye. And, uh, yeah, though uh, I have always wondered, because the calibre had 
four issues had four new covers so I think he's done the that motif of the uh, soldier coming towards you with the gas mask right about three or four times and obviously there's now the digital one but yeah I'd love to I'd love to have seen what happened to the uh, original one and there must have been another one for the caliber yes and then finally for the digital there's a third version I think there's even another version because I'm sure uh, one of the dreadcons I got him to sign a digital print oh right okay teddy bears and it was digital and uh, yeah so you can kind of compare and contrast uh, how digital has changed his art not a lot right okay yeah I mean and, you know he does provide fascinating background information in this book and like we've already said his sort of videos of his technical process of doing his digital art are just fascinating to watch and always worth looking at um, he is a very good sharing creator you know sharing how he does the yeah. process um, okay um, the pair of them together Ian Edgington and Disraeli because they do I think you know often get mentioned in the same breath and, and I think in Ian Edgington's introduction for this hardback he says something like Matt lives in my head <laughs> You know, um, yeah, in fact, he actually says that Matt lives in my head. He's able to, from my barest of panel descriptions, he can produce what I see in my own mind's eye. In fact, it will be better, he says. So it's, you know, they're an amazing combination. You've done great works. Um, I guess we've mentioned Scarlet Traces, which has been on the podcast. We've yeah. mentioned Leviathan. Actually, if anybody's interested, Leviathan is now back in the general pool. It's available to pick. So if anyone wants to come in and talk about Leviathan, please do. Huh? Um, helium hasn't been picked yet. Uh, I forgot about Helium. To be yes, honest. I know. Well, we're not sure if Helium's coming back. I guess, it, I think maybe Tin and Trevelyan has that taken over the art, possibly. Anyway. Okay. I mean... Uh, what else would you like to say about Kingdom and the Wicked, and in particular, perhaps about why it isn't as well known as you and I think it should be? Um, that abuses me. Um, I don't know. I think it, it's had a checkered history in its printing, uh, it, and as it's self-contained, it also doesn't hasn't leaked out into other uh, issues or, or series. So. There's no and there's no been any back referencing to it in the Edgington verse. So, but <clears throat> yeah, I, I just think it, it unfortunately got mixed up in a time when it should have been printed, and it would have come out with a lot of fanfare. And then when it did finally come out, it didn't come out with a lot of fanfare, and it missed a lot of people. And now it sits as like an older comic, and it's not new. There's nothing new to promote in it. But it's, it's as I say, if, if I'm kind of appealing to the 2000 AD fans, if you if you've liked what they do in 2000 AD and they do so well, then this is like the beginning of that, but also a cracking self-contained story as is. It is. I mean, I think it's a marvelous self-contained story. It's a fairly slim hardback, so you can read it fairly quickly. But it is perfectly satisfying. Yeah. It does, as you said earlier on. It's got a beginning. It's got a minute, middle. It's got an end. It's got a prologue to that. There's an introduction. There's the afterwards, the art details. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it's cracking. And this idea of the fantasy fictional world that has been corrupted and come become darker and that you return to in your adulthood. I just think it's marvellous. I think it's great, yeah. a great area. To... I think there was a lot to go back to, and also my kind of uh, 
sadistic self would love to have seen Disraeli ruin a few more childhood favourites. Right. I mean, maybe I'd like to have seen almost uh, like what Pat Mills did with uh, um, Martial Law, where he basically ruined every superhero. Yes. By yes. pointing out. Well, how awful flaws. they were. Yeah. Well, I think Disraeli would have had, should have been given the toy box, and we should have had a lot of. Well, Disraeli and Ian obviously should have been given the toy box, and we should have had a lot more dark tales. Because, as I say, Little Monster uh, is it's a self-contained little tale within the universe. Yeah. And, and again, it's very satisfying. So, a few more of those, maybe in in, a, in another edition. I'm just whinging. I just basically want them to go back and draw more, more stories. Or for it to become available again, yes, I guess. Because obviously. the hardback is out of print and you have to seek down second-hand copies. Although they do actually, Ian and, and Matt do still have copies to sell at conventions. Yes. They had some at Thought Bubble this year. And in fact, they, they very kindly donated me a copy, which I auctioned for Cancer Research, which was very kind of them. Uh, digital, is it on Comixology or anything like that? Yes. It is. Oh, great. It's on Comixology in a lovely little uh, version, and uh, it really pings if you... It's, digital is now the way I read my comics, just because it means I actually read comics rather than not getting down to the shop and buying them and right. forgetting them and all this. So now I do it digitally. And yeah, it's it's an amazing little package. Um, I'm I'm hoping the Comicsology deal obviously gives uh, the the creators a, a lot of money back. I don't know how it works because Comicsology seems to sometimes be giving stuff away. No, I, 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 you know, yes, I don't know how it works, and I'm fascinated to know to you know to learn a little bit about the tortuous journey that this book has had through various different publishers over the years, at least four I think that we've mentioned and now it's, you know, you can get digitally on Comixology. Um, As you say, I hope that Ian and Matt have made some money out of it along the way because it is a a lovely book. I mean the fact that they they totally own it and uh, uh, Disraeli was saying they have digital copies means it could be made available again in a print Right. I just think there needs to be maybe a groundswell of people uh, wanting it. And, uh, yeah, if you're somebody who, who likes the physical feel of a book, then get on them and say they should do their new version. And also have a long bit at the front that tells you the convoluted story of how it finally came to be. Absolutely, yes, because sometimes the process is fascinating. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Pat Mills a moment ago. The... the you know, it did feel at times very Charlie's War in a way, yeah. except with teddy bears, um, which might sound ludicrous, but actually it's incredibly moving and powerful. But that kind of puts them in the fact that Ian and uh, Disraeli, or Matt, have uh, have read Charlie's War. Yeah. And so, again, it puts it in a certain context that I think I find very relatable. Uh, so... <clears throat> Great, Duncan. It's fascinating. Do get yourself a copy of Kingdom of the Wicked. I yeah. shall, if you look in the show notes for this episode, I will have a link to the Comicsology page so yeah. that you can at least get the digital version. And if you... I'll only be asking ten percent for promotional. Okay, <laughs> a small consideration yeah. for Duncan for pointing you in the right direction. Or some of the honey for me. And it, before I ask you the Grail page game, anything else that you wanted to mention about the story or the book itself? Uh, or its journey to uh, print and digital? No, um, um, I think hopefully we've covered it. Hopefully we haven't gushed too badly. Well, we've certainly not spoiled it, yes. 
Um, Duncan is just pointing out that in the Mugwump's cabin, it would appear that an earlier feast involved possibly uh, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck because their skulls appear to be there. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we should say that like any Ian Edgington and Matt Brooker book, there are, it is littered with little references to popular culture. And if you want to read a set of annotations that tell you or spot all the references in all their books, I can point you to my website where I do that. Oh, do you? <laughs> yes, I oh, do. I'd love got, to read that. I've got a book, I've got, a, sorry, I've got a web page full of annotations to various uh, Ian and Matt books. Oh, um, fantastic. Including oh. Scarlet Traces and Leviathan and this book as well. I'd love to see the stuff that I've missed. Oh, I, I oh. shall send you a link and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's play the the Grail page game. If this artwork uh, was available, had all been sold just before publication, um, and we had the unlimited fantasy budget of Mega City Book Club, have you a page or cover or two that you'd well, like to pick? Strange enough, I already own. Oh, even King better, of the Wicked. This is why I know it was in full colour before uh, it was printed. Ah. So I have the that page I was just pointing to of the I have the mugwump. Yep. I have the page where he first enters the mugwump's cave. So let's flick back. Here we yeah. are. We found the mugwump pages. Best best radio you can listen to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you go forward that one. That's I have this page. Oh my goodness. So this is why you were pointing at yes. it. Right. So this is why I know that the uh, the, the colors ping already. If you see them in the in their normal and they're on lovely rich thick uh, watercolor pages uh, with the with the overlays for the uh, uh, lettering and they are the rich colors that you see in the print are the rich colors you get if anything the the orange of the boiling mess pings even more right I then have uh, the follow up of the mugwomp with the bloody nose. Oh, and that's a lovely image as yeah. well, isn't it? Great big splash image of the mugwomp and the way that the, his teeth, his sharp teeth are sitting around the... Interlocking and bleeding, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I have a, a uh, my favourite page. Uh, I have a page of the um, uh, uh, World War One teddy bears. Uh, unfortunately, when I, I think when I bought it off him, Matt said that these ones had sold out in in... So, we'll go back just yeah. a bit. bit. Keep going. Yeah, it's that one. Right. So you've got the the Ursine infantry in their trench. Yeah. Um, when Chris first arrives, basically. Yeah. My and goodness. again, and so it's got all the colours. And then the final other piece I own, which was at a wonderful time where I was in contact with Disraeli and desperate to buy some of his art, which I think it's amazing and also i managed to buy my favorite ever timulo oh right so, yes so timulo. now physically hold, physically having that timulo is, is a very weird experience because it meant so much to me then there was a gap of about 30 years and suddenly i'm at a convention buying it and um the caliber covers i have the cover to issue three which is the big close-up of the charlie brown character oh, i don't know right. if it's reprinted in i there. don't think it is is it no, no. That uh, is just absolutely again. They're, they're on fantastic. It's an odd thing to to mention, but they're aesthetically pleasing as items. Yeah, because on this wonderful thick, heavy uh, watercolor page, 
and they they're vibrant colours just knock out there's been there's no fading or anything like that the only bad thing about it is as an ex once told me uh, she wasn't having that spooky ass shit on the wall <laughs> so we had a compromise and I brought out my Captain Britain figures because she thought they were uh, UKIP or uh, BMP and I said we needed a compromise where well, I either had the spooky ass shit on the wall or I had my uh, Captain Britain yep. figures. I'm, I am a man in his 40s, by the way. <laughs> but, yeah, so that's always ch- chuffed me that uh, I got it framed and uh, had it on the wall and people do not like it. I think, I th- I think if, if anything, that, that means it serves its purpose. Yes. It makes me smile that other people go, what the hell is that? Um, so, that's... yeah, so I, I, I'd love to own more. I mean, you're doing pretty well. (laughs) I I, I was very lucky. I'd love to know, but it's also one of those amusing ones where people say, "Oh, I I sold that," and then you never see anyone with with it on their art sites or anything like that. There was a guy who bought a load of uh, uh, Lazarus Churchyard from Disraeli. Well, I was was second in the bloody queue, and of course, the guy in front pays like eight hundred quid and buys all the pages that you would take in a check, and I'm like going a check, a check. Uh, yeah, and he bought all the pages, and I've never seen them again. And I think that's so that where they just disappeared into the ether. Because yeah, I say, as I say, they're, they're gorgeous, and and you'd be very lucky. Obviously, uh, some of them on your wall would have people asking what was wrong with you. Yes, to have the uh, the um, teddy bears being cut down in some kind of som like massacre. But yes. I love it. I, I, I would. I'd gladly have it on my wall. I'd be very, very happy because, as I say, Matt's work is just terrific. So I mean, it's fascinating because you've done two things. Firstly, you've been a guest that's actually got Grail pages. Yeah. Um, I think the only other previous example is that Pete Wells owns some of the covers of from the uh, the Judge Dredd covers book we did. But apart oh. from that, so that's amazing. But you've also covered that other sort of fairly well known. Um, grail page trope which is um, can I own it and then is it actually something I'm able to hang on a wall because people might look at it and say that's a bit grim isn't it Yeah. Um, so fascinating okay Um, I'll just very quickly do mine I think I I was going to pick the page of the mugwump plummeting um, as a single page because it's just so beautiful Yes. but I would I would probably unless you've already sort of picked it as an extra grail I would probably have the Ursine infantry going over the top no I, 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 as I say I, as I already own pages if I was going at the ones that I, if I had the what I'd like to yeah those two as I, I think both of them work really well yeah but yeah, so and, I yet, and yet there's something a bit grim about it, isn't there? It's very grim. We're, we're, we're taking the low point of the book, and yes. yeah, it's, it's wonderful because it's such strong images. Yes, I mean, it's terrible because Chris Graham has just been, in the book, has just been reunited with his childhood friend, Fuzzbox, the, uh, the teddy bear, who is now like the sergeant in the Ursine Infantry, and they're about to go over the top, and it's very sort of Blackadder goes forth in yeah. the end. Um, <laughs> Memorable. Fascinating. Okay, let's close the book on Kingdom of the Wicked. Do get yourself a copy and look for that Comixology link that I will provide, uh, courtesy of Duncan. Excellent, Duncan. It's guest projects time. Now, last time, as I say, two years ago, you were telling us about 
your own site, artstation.com slash dunk underscore Nimo. Yep. Uh, presumably, there's still you putting bits of art. Still artists. stuff out in there. Uh, I've moved on, and uh, I'm working at a different company now than I was. I'm working for the the Rebellion. Big news, yeah. Duncan. <laughs> so everyone thinks I'm I'm on the inside, and I am, but I'm, I can't talk about it. So uh, you are now, if I get this right, senior concepts artist at Rebellion, Rebellion. no less. Yes, but I work on the. Uh, computer games. Yes, yeah, so you're not working on the 2000 AD side. No, you're I, working on the computer gaming computer side. Games. And it's a lovely place to work. Um, I've had recent uh, bouts of illness and they've been fantastic about it. Right. So I'm a big fan. So I'm a big fan in one way that they publish 2000 AD and then I'm a big fan in another way that as employers they're great but I don't want to sound like too much of a sycophant. Well, I mean we're delighted that you're working for them. Yeah, I'm... I'm uh, tough to bits but uh, yeah so I'm, and I'm, as it's announced I'm working I'm making up the concepts for Evil Genius 2 which right. is a follow on to Evil Genius and it's basically a spy fi uh, game where you play the Evil Genius and uh, those pesky spies are trying to get into your uh, bunker or lair and so we've spent the last year and a half designing all of that all right. very yeah, very um, uh, James Bondy sixties, but with a twist. Elements for the game. Yeah. Hopefully, that will come out next year. Uh, I don't know what the actual schedule is on that at the moment because there's been lots, so much interest. We put it out there, and so many people went, "Oh my God, you were genius too!" That I think we're they're playing with the content that you'll get. So yeah, that's where I am at the moment. Fantastic. Okay, so that's Evil Genius 2, which will be out sometime in 2020. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you can talk about that. Obviously, there's other stuff that you can't... That has been announced. That, yeah, that's, that's what I have to remember in my head. Which bits you what, can't talk about. Anything hey? exciting I know I can't blurb out. Yeah. It's, it's great sometimes to hear that. But in, in lots of ways, I'm as in the dark as other people. So I do get the same joy that something gets announced for 2000 AD. And I hear it at the same time as anyone else does. So... I get that buzz and think, oh, good. I'm not holding on to secrets that are, you know, burning a hole in my stomach. Right. And do you get to visit any of the the rebellion uh, studios or buildings or you know the the nerve center itself at all ever? I have been to the nerve center. You have been. Oh, and wow. It is just an office. Right. <laughs> Hate to pop everyone's delusions. It was an office full of people who, on that day, looked pretty pissed off about something. And they were staring at computer uh, screens. Staring at computer screens in humming silence. But right. there was a. I wish I'd remember his name. There was a great chap who showed us around very enthusiastically and showed us the vast volumes of the uh, backlog, back catalogue of comics they've bought, which have all been put into, uh, bound into volumes. Yes. So I have I have seen how uh, Jinty fades into Tammy, fades into Misty. Oh, you've seen some of the archive. I've oh. seen some of the archive, and that was fascinating. Yeah, I bet. For me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it would be my, for my me fellow, well. My fellow colleagues are all... Uh, computer game fans more so they yeah. were like what is this yeah. and I was secretly going oh my god yeah. and I was also pointing at things like the, the infamous dread uh, alien statue that never got made yeah. uh, there's the prototype sat on, the, uh. sat on a, a shelf there was some Ron Smith artwork casually lying there 
Which had me going, oh my god. But yeah, fascinating, yeah. the whole archive, almost the entire history of British comics, sort of, you know, there oh, they it, are. It's fascinating to watch, because you, you, you see, it's like Ginty 1960, Ginty yeah. 1961, Ginty 19... And then suddenly it becomes like Ginty and, and you can you can almost map how everything used to family fold into trees, each other. Yeah. The family tree of British and, comics. And then suddenly it's Ginty and blah, Ginty and blah for a while, then it's back to just being Ginty, and you're like, oh, OK, because obviously they were absorbed and forgotten about a bit like uh, Star Lord and uh, Tornado yeah yeah of course which, which you forget Hatch, match dispatch yeah. and all that yeah the great news for all readers and fold them all into the same yeah. thing so we could be talking about our love of Star Lord today if, yeah we if could it, be because it could be a Star Lord podcast yeah yeah hopefully not uh, Tornado that was <laughs> obviously but yeah no so uh, uh, yeah I, I recommend it if anyone out there is, is a budding uh, concept artist I really do enjoy uh, if people want to get in touch and uh, tell me about their stuff or want their stuff critiqued warning I'm a very harsh critiquer because I I take it that you want to work professionally and you're not just asking me to back up what your mum says right so I do give that warning because I've made a few people cry over over the emails I haven't seen their delicious tears but yeah and uh, yeah so if that, that's what's going on with me at the moment. Okay, great. So you're on uh, artstation.com uh, slash dunk underscore Nimmo. Yeah. You're also on Twitter at Duncan Nimmo, I think, aren't you? You'll be a, you'll be, I'll tweet you when I tweet this episode, yes. basically. Um, so you'll be able to find Duncan that way. Yep. I don't know. Are, are you regularly on Twitter? Probably not. No, I'm not regularly yeah. on Twitter, but as I say, through my art station. Art station's the I'm place quite, to go. Uh, uh, yeah, and as I say, any, anyone out there, buddy, or just want advice about getting into the games industry, because it is a tough one to break into, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy. I just can't give you any kind of uh, a leg up. Yeah. Right. I'm happy to give advice, but I can't give you any preferential treatment, or I don't secretly know where all the jobs are. Well, I tell you what. I mean, I I would include your art station page in the show notes for this episode. Yeah. That so would, if anybody that wants have, to see, that should have a link to my personal right. uh, email, and I'm quite happy, as I say, quite happy to take stuff like that because I also all quite happily ignore it if I'm not in the mood. So, uh, yeah, uh, if you want to see Duncan's art, but also if you want to contact him and talk about you know becoming a concepts artist in the video gaming industry and get some advice and critique, that's the place to be. Great. Yep. Excellent. Uh, so that'll about wrap us up, Duncan. We're in London. We're about it's it's we're about to go off for the Christmas meetup of the 2080 Southern Contingent yep. as organised by That's why we're both wearing such spanky Christmas tops. jumpers, yes. Um, we're off to meet John Burdis and the rest of the 2080 Southern Contingent. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, I would say if you are unsure about coming to any of these 2000 AD fan meetups like the Southern Contingent like the Eastern Contingent that's just started with Gary Hill like that's uh, fake by the way <laughs> like any of the others then get in touch with me to get some of the details and um, don't be afraid you know to come along it's only a few years since I came along to my first one feeling a bit nervous because I didn't know anybody and finding actually this very friendly group of people there isn't any sort of test when you arrive you're not quizzed on you know no. whether you know chapter and verse on 
the different artists on this and that and you know yeah. and stuff like that it's very very low key it's just a group of people who get together regularly to talk about comics and have a good time basically yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the conversation devolves into complete everydayness yep. very easily, and it's every subject under the sun. It's just the starting point is usually 2008. Absolutely. So get in touch with me if you want more details about that, and I'll point you towards the various groups. Uh, and I guess that will about do us. Get in touch with me if you'd like to talk about Leviathan, perhaps on the podcast. Yes, do, because I'd like to hear that one. Good. And also check out and trace uh, track down The Kingdom of the Wicked or Kingdom of the Wicked yes. by Ian Edgington 10%. and Israeli. <laughs> Absolutely. 10% goes to, 10% of a fictional amount goes to Duncan. Uh, and that will do us. Brilliant. So thank you for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, find all the links at megacitybookclub.com. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I keep making the MySpace page joke. Uh, there probably is one by now. Uh, we're also on Spotify. And email me at mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch and come and review a book with me, yes. either in London or another undisclosed location around the country. I heartily recommend it. It's always been fun. And now I'm on my third, and I'm desperately trying to think of my fourth. Okay. So, until next time, when we're passing judgment on another fine 2008 ebook, it's time for goodbyes. So, here from our secret location, in a, literally in a box in London, it's goodbye from me and. It's goodbye from me. 